You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Uh, today, I'm joined by Karen Hansen-Kuhn, IATP's Director of Trade and Global Governance. Uh, Karen was just at a conference in Ecuador on neo-extractivism uh, that was hosted by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. And we're going to talk about what neo-extractivism is and kind of the history of extractive industries in Latin America. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Hi. All right. So let's start with the definition. What is neo-extractivism? So extractivism, of course, is relying on extractive industries like uh, mining or, or oil mine or oil extraction to finance uh, economic activities. And the neo part of it, in this case, refers to this happening. I mean, this was something that's happened for centuries in many countries. But in many of these Andean countries, particularly Ecuador, Bolivia, and Venezuela, with the new progressive governments that came in in the 2000s, there were new constitutions that established a lot of new rights. And so this is about extractivism under that new condition, those, the new circumstances. I have to say, I have been so focused on NAFTA and before that on TTIP for the last few years that I hadn't really focused so much on Latin America, even though for decades that's where a lot of my work was, was centered. And when I first got the invitation to this conference, I thought, oh, this will be so inspiring to go hear how these new progressive governments, you know, are operating in, an, in, in this context, you know, it's so in contrast what we're experiencing in the United States. And, um, and of course, it's, it's much more difficult than that. In fact, when I told people at the conference that they all laughed, you know, because there are all these conflicts now with social movements who want to rein that process in. But in the end, you know, I came back to the fact that it is still inspiring because of the fact that these social movements are so strong in these countries and are have established those rights and are using them as tools uh, to advance a different kind of development. Uh, so in that sense, I came back to where I started. Um, this process, this, this focus on uh, alternatives to development is a process that the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation began, I think, eight years ago. Uh, they have a series of conferences with a few core people but always bringing in a mix of academics and activists to discuss, you know, how sort of new themes in development, how you might get at a more holistic approach to development that doesn't only focus on GDP or economic expansion. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So can you talk a bit more about what rights were in the new constitutions and then how is that conflicted with the government's interests in continuing to have extractive industry? Well, so in Ecuador, they passed a new constitution in 2008 uh, that includes um, guarantees for the right to food, the right to water, the rights of nature, uh, which is something very new, as well as uh, for communities for free prior and informed consent of communities when these kinds of operations begin. All of these were really important innovations at Ecuador and Bolivia were some of the leaders in the world to enshrining those kinds of rights in their constitutions. And they, of course, result from decades of activism by local groups. So, you know, the, the clearest conflict comes in, you know, with the idea of free prior and informed consent. This is a term that is used a lot in, in development circles 
um, you know, that is what it sounds like, that a community has to be fully consulted about a new project and give their consent before it moves forward. And so, you know, you have these rights enshrined in a new constitution. At the same time, governments come in, you know, to be fair, wanting to in increase investments in social spending and to reassert state control over mining operations and different kinds of extractive industries. So they wanted to expand production under their own control um, to generate resources. This immediately created a lot of conflicts um, because many communities, you know, weren't so keen to have a gold mine, you know, on their lands with all of the kinds of, you know, pollution that might result. And, and those that are thinking, I think, even more forward are saying, you know, why are we depending on these same kinds of extractive industries, the same model of production that has been so devastating for the climate, you know, and are urging instead a different kind of economic activity. Um, and then, of course, and then, you know, after a few years, commodity prices dropped, including for energy, energy. And so, you know, for a time, it may be that it seemed like a good bet when it was generating a lot of resources, but then the resources started to dry up and the commitments were still there. And so mm -hmm. the conflicts have only intensified. Um, so that is the sort of neo part of it. Um, but this group is also broadening the definition beyond mining and petroleum, beyond energy extraction, to also talk about industrial agriculture. There's been a big expansion of soybean production, um, of certain, certain crops, uh, palm oil being used, you know, des designated for biofuels, and increasingly, one thing I talked with people about, also for meat, you know, geared towards the market in China, um, global markets, and as well as nationally, sort of the beginning of things like CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations in these countries and the, the associated pollution and other issues that come out of that. So I thought that was something innovative in this approach to, to look at industrial agriculture geared for export as a form of extraction um, and, you know, to reassert citizens' control over those kinds of operations. Yeah, it was, you know, we've been talking about industrial livestock as an extractive industry at ITP for a little while now, so it's good to see that that's catching on. So I guess in my own conception, when I think about Latin America, I think about, um, you know, how transnational corporations have um, kind of come in and used, uh, kind of gotten in bed with some of the governments to be able to do some of this extraction. And a lot of the way that they're able to then sell the product back to developed countries is through trade agreements. So what role does trade policy play in neo-extractivism? Well, I think you have to go back perhaps one step back from the trade agreements to the whole round of structural adjustment programs that were implemented by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, primarily in the 90s. Um, a lot of that involved privatization, uh, deregulation, and so gave foreign companies more rights in these countries. And so then when the trade agreements came in, both trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties, those tended to lock those programs in place. So it was very difficult for governments to do anything different. And of course, we talk a lot about investor state dispute settlement. This has been a huge issue 
even with for countries that we don't have trade agreements with, there's often these bilateral investment treaties. One of the, the earliest massive campaigns against that mechanism was in Bolivia over water privatization in Cochabamba. So those kinds of cases continue. Now, there has been a backlash. Um, in uh, the mid-2000s, there was a big push for a free trade area of the Americas that would have locked everybody into those kinds of arrangements on a permanent basis. Um, and there was massive uh, resistance to that. We were part of the Hemispheric Social Alliance, which included chapters in 23 countries, including in Ecuador. And that's something that I think is still present in people's minds. Um, in that case, the, the opposition was really led by CONAI, the, the indigenous federation there. Um, and so that also, you know, sort of created some building blocks. The FTAA was defeated. The different countries had to withdraw in the face of contradictions among the governments and, you know, and this massive resistance in different countries. Um, so there is that background. And I think there's also Ecuador had originally been involved in negotiations for an Andean free trade agreement with the United States, but withdrew um, at one point. So that what ended up being just the, the Peru free trade agreement, mm -hmm. as well as later one with Colombia. So all of, all of that history is there and still present in the, the memory of these organizations. Yeah, I think, you know, you had mentioned before we started recording that the the memory is much longer in Latin America than it is in the United States. So I, I wanted to see if you could talk a bit more about um, what the social movements have really kind of been up to in the last 20 years and how they're, how those past fights are informing what they're doing now. Well, of course, there's lots of different battles. So I wouldn't say I could, I could outline all of that, but certainly on trade, um, there was, you know, this massive resistance that uh, this hemispheric social alliance came together at one point represented 50 million people in the Americas. It brought together unions, environmental groups, uh, indigenous federations in ways they simply had not done before. Um, there was a lot of mistrust among those different networks originally for, for different historic reasons. And people came together, both, and I think there was a strong emphasis both on critiques of the agreements and developing alternative proposals. So that, you know, they said you have to walk with two feet, you have to have both of them. Um, and in so these, the chapter, the different chapters, um, you know, worked out differently in different countries. I think in the US it was really led by the unions. Uh, in, as I said, in Ecuador, different groups came together, certainly environmental groups like Acción Ecológica were part of this, um, but it was really led by indigenous federations. And so, you know, as we get there, people talk about, they, they recognize that experience and, and draw on it still um, in thinking about what this might mean. Because um, there were really active debates that, you know, were, were stimulated in part by people's opposition to the Bush administration. And so now, you know, people are equally skeptical, um, if not more so. And in fact, one thing I learned when I was there was that there had been some kind of visit um, from the U.S. government where there were discussions about a possible free trade agreement between Ecuador and the U.S. And I don't know much about that. That's something I want to look into more. But 
what was interesting to me was the response from different civil society organizations drew on that history. You know, here are some issues we have been concerned about for a long time, issues around the rights of nature, around labor rights, and they continue to have those, those concerns and, and also to demand greater transparency so that we, if there are such negotiations, uh, we can find out what's going on. Now, given the way NAFTA is being renegotiated, it's hard to be optimistic about any degree of transparency. Um, but in any case, those experiences with those past battles inform what's happening now. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, one of the other things I found thought that was really interesting that you talked about beforehand was um, some of the, the site visits you had done um, while you were in Ecuador and what's being done on the ground. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it sounds like there's, you know, the, um, the movements are, you know, they're definitely having to fight a lot, <laughs> play a lot of defense, but at the same time, they're also seeing some results. Yeah, we've, I mean, that was one thing that was really nice about this conference, that it wasn't just us sitting in a conference room, you know, debating things. We were in, we talked with different communities. We met with um, people, we were in Playas, Ecuador, and we met nearby, went nearby to visit a fishing community where there is construction of a deep water port um, that's beginning. And also visited a community a bit to the north called Engabao, which is this beautiful fishing community where I think there's a little bit of tourism, but mostly, you know, it's something controlled by the local community. The communities have ancestral rights to those lands that go back for centuries and firm land titles to lands in that community, but a lot of the surrounding lands too. And one thing they're confronting is uh, a local company that wants to build a tourist resort there, not far from, from the fishing village. And they have been adamant that they don't want this to happen. And in fact, use the court system there um, to assert their land title and their continuing rights. So this is an ongoing struggle and it's something I'm hoping to learn more about you know, as we move on and see if there's ways we can help to, to publicize their struggle. But you know, one thing I heard a lot when I was there is people using these different tools they have with the Constitution to assert their legal rights in addition to the popular mobilizing. So as you know, as one of a series of tools, but feeling really frustrated that in some cases, like with this fishing community, they said they had proven their land title multiple times and yet the construction was still beginning. Um, on the other hand, over the weekend, I got an email from some people involved in the conference about a community called uh, Rio Blanco, where local communities had been opposing gold and silver mining, and a judge just ruled over the weekend, or I guess on Friday, um, that the operations had to be suspended because they had not done the kinds of consultations that they were supposed to do with the communities. Communities have also been complaining about water pollution from the gold mining, and, and the judge also said that this clearly, this seems to conflict with the right to water of these communities. So this is exciting. I think this is the first time they've been able to stop a mining operation, at least temporarily, using those rights, um, or the first time recently anyway. And, and everybody recognizes that it's not over. Um, but it does, it was encouraging again, and, I, and as I said, um, inspiring 
that the way these social movements and activists come together on a variety of fronts to create the kind of pressure they need to make change. Mm -hmm. And so given all that and given the, you know, the, the last few days at this conference, were there any big, broad themes or goals that emerged for what the, the future of the kind of resistance to neo-extractivism is? Well, I guess that's hard to say. It wasn't, it wasn't a strategy meeting. It was more just us trying to understand each other and understand the processes that are happening. Um, and there will be a book that comes out of this. Uh, so they'll be documenting a lot of what happened. I think, so there, I guess a couple of things that came up were starting to uh, think through more carefully the connections between um, these movements and women's rights and the way that women's rights are being, um, th this is all part of, you know, a sort of patriarchal form of economic expansion that tends to ignore women's rights. And people, I mean, the reason I was there and a couple of other Europeans was to talk about the broader economic context, you know, what's happening with the new right in US and Europe and how that relates to some of the processes that are underway uh, in Latin America. So, um, so I think this was mainly just us understanding each other better. I will certainly be following up with these people on this trade agreement, for example, um, and providing information uh, for movements there that we have about what NAFTA and other trade agreements have meant for farming communities. Um, so I think it's also about making those connections moving forward, but also really trying to take a step back, you know, a step back from the battles to think about the context and where all of this seems to be going. Yeah, and I'm, maybe let's just touch on that to, to wrap up. So what, um, what is the alternative uh, vision that, that I would say maybe civil society and social movements are really looking towards? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, it, we hear it in this country as well. People want, you know, not just economic expansion. Uh, it's not just about, you know, increasing the volume of economic activity and not even only about thinking about how this, this model has increased economic inequality, although that's certainly part of it too, but grounding it in rights, thinking about what, you know, in Latin America, they talk about buen vivir, like good living, a more holistic vision of, of a better lifestyle that's grounded in the rights to food and water, thinking about our impacts on nature. So certainly, you know, one of the alternatives that came up as we discussed uh, industrial agriculture was agroecology and food sovereignty. Uh, you know, we see this playing out in many countries, people, you know, rethinking what it takes to have a healthy food system that it's not just about the volume of the food you're producing. And so, you know, in, in these countries, they recognize the need for resources, but they say that the community's needs, the community's goals should come first and should also be grounded in a conversation about what kind of economic expansion you want in the context of climate change. A deep question to end on. Um, well, Karen, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Sure. 
You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you heard, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I want to thank Andrew Arisso for editing the podcast and remind you that uh, Uprooted is available for download on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you like what you heard, please give us a positive rating. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you next time.